Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that knows right now the toughest job in America is fantasy football commissioner. Here is our captain. They call me the commish. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are sipping on some Day Raider Belgian-style white ale by the Beer Wizards over at Kelson Brewing Company. Day Raider features a light malt body with wonderful aromas of citrus, garage-grade, four out of five bottle caps. All right, let's toast some of our friends before we get started. Here's a cheers to our friend Shelly in Milwaukee. And a big shout to Susan in Lancaster County. Pennsylvania. Next up, Captain, we have Ashley, who's all the way out in Pueblo West, Colorado. And a big We Like Your Jib to Jill in Manhattan, Kansas. Next up, Captain, we have Lisa in Covington, Georgia. And here is a very special Ron Swanson. Please and thank you to my beer drinking friend, Ira B. in Nova Scotia. Everyone we just mentioned contributed to this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, Beer Run. And if you would like to support the show, I would. Go to TrueCrimeGarage.com and click on the donate banner. Also, for our old episodes, download the Stitcher app. They are free, and we have a bonus show called Off the Record. And if you're not listening, then you're not in the know. Get right. Get Stitcher Premium. And why don't you shut the hell up? <laughs> All right. That's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
As hard as they were to hear, at times we have sat through the interviews of four of the five individuals being interviewed for the murder of Kimberly Cates. And now we have Steven Spader, who is left. Chris Gribble gave us a good amount of information, and he showed us what kind of heartless individual he actually is. It's time for Steven Spader. Did he tell the same story as Gribble? In a nutshell, no. Instead, Spader threw his childhood friend right under the bus. The affidavit sums it up best. Quote, Spader told the police in substance that he did not commit the charged crimes, that he did not know who did it, that whoever did it should get the death penalty. He also stated that on October 4, he was at the Pheasant Lane Mall in Nashua with Christopher Gribble while he pawned jewelry, presumably the jewelry taken from the Cates' home. Spader then lawyered up and refused to talk to the authorities. This is confusing. As we saw, these boys took pains to make sure that they were not caught. They wore gloves. They got rid of their clothes. They cleaned the blood evidence up with bleach and other cleaning agents. But then they told everyone they knew about the murders. Here's what the affidavit says the boys blabbed about to people. During the day on Sunday, Spader told Jamie Hollins, remember he was at Kyle Fenton's house, all about the murder, quote, because he trusted him. As we know, they also told Fenton all about it, and his mom was the one who actually called the police. Gribble said that they threatened Eldon Spikes on Sunday. Remember that Spikes was hanging out with the four of them that Sunday, and they all had gone together to the pawn shop to sell some items stolen from the house. When Spader found out Spike's girlfriend knew about the murder, he threatened him, and so did Gribble. They showed a number of people the knives on Sunday, but then became concerned that so many people knew, so they cleaned the knife and the machete and the sheaths with bleach and alcohol, and then buried the knives in the woods. They also buried a pearl necklace they stole from the Kate's home that they could not pawn. These items were collected by investigators after Gribble led them to the burial spot. This is not laid out in the affidavit, but it seems likely that at least one of them told his girlfriend, as we know that Glover's girlfriend called and yelled at him about it. Also, Jillian Baptist, Spader's girlfriend, was included in an outing to the Pheasant Lane Mall where they pawned the jewelry. She testified that she later learned what they had done and cut ties with Spader. Right. And let's go back to the idea that we know that Gribble is a horrible person, but he's also telling the authorities, Hey, Spader is actually the real deal. So now let's get into the autopsy and the charges. The medical examiner found that Kimberly Cates died from 32 sharp injuries to her head, neck, torso, left arm, and left leg from two different weapons. Manner of death, of course, homicide. She was alive, unfortunately, for the entirety of the attack per the medical examiner's testimony. During all of the blows, she was alive. These included one that broke apart her upper arm bone and two that broke open her skull and sunk into her brain. 
The medical examiner also said that her throat was cut and one eyeball was dislodged from the force of the blows. Jamie, the 11-year-old girl, suffered multiple debilitating injuries. She had a broken jaw. She had a punctured lung. She had to have part of her foot amputated as well as skin grafts for multiple lacerations that required plastic surgery. One wound penetrated and fractured her skull. Her elbow was broken. She had multiple stab wounds from what looked like a small knife. Per the sentencing memo, quote, her treating physicians at Children's Hospital in Boston testified that they had never treated any patient, adult or child, with that many stab or hack wounds, end quote. A doctor testified at one of the trials that Jamie would have died of a punctured lung if she had lost consciousness before calling the police. Within two days, the detailed arrest affidavit we have been reading from was filed with the Milford District Court that laid out the case against the four who participated in the attack on the Cates family. Per WMUR, quote, a little after 6 a.m. on Tuesday, October 6th, the state attorney general's office issued a press release to the media that said four arrests have been made in connection to the Mount Vernon killing and attack. Before noon on that same day, Spader, Gribble, Marks, and Glover were arraigned one by one at Milford District Court. So they're going to charge all five of them. Yeah, so Chris Gribble and Stephen Spader were charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to murder, as well as a bunch of lesser charges. William Marks and Quinn Glover were charged with burglary, conspiracy to burglary, and robbery. They were warned that prosecutors would seek additional indictments when they presented their cases to a grand jury. In early November, more charges were forthcoming. Autumn Savoy was charged with two counts of hindering apprehension or prosecution and one count of conspiracy to commit hindering apprehension or prosecution. This was, of course, because of his throwing the evidence bag into the river and then lying to police about the false alibi. Question for you. Maybe you know this. Um, do they have to charge these individuals? Therefore, they can use that as like some leverage against them to testify? Well, yes, of course, but they also have to charge them just to hold, continue to hold them. Right, at at right, some right. point, if you don't charge them, they, they have rights as a citizen who's not being detained and they have to be released. So... I think what you have here, Captain, is when you got a, a whole batch of assholes that you have mm. to um, charge with an, an hey assortment now. of charges, mm. I think not only does it take some time to, it takes time to hash that out. Who's guilty of what? And what will the public decide they're guilty of and, and agree to as well? So it's hard to overstate the shock you know, we've just spent an hour or so on this case, but I want everybody to really kind of sit and think about this for a minute because it's really hard to state the amount of shock that ensued from the arrest of these boys. They had their problems, of course, but in general, no one saw this coming. 
We talked about the area. They, this place had not had a murder in over a hundred years. And then mm-hmm. when you solve it this quickly, or you are making arrest this quickly and the public can see what's going on. And now they're being told that the perpetrators are children. Essentially it's, it was, I mean, the, the area was in shock from the murder itself and from the attack itself. But now you double down on that, that the perpetrators, they look like kids on the evening news. They don't look like some monster that strolled into town and, and took away one of your own. Well, again, it also depends on what picture they're getting. You know, if you, if you take any of these kids and, and go back three years, some of these kids were doing all right then. And obviously the, the age is a lot younger, so they look way more innocent. But just imagine what these parents are going through. We know through some of the testimony that some of the parents knew that the, these kids were going down the wrong path. Hmm. But maybe down the wrong path for some kids, there's like, oh, well, now he's he smokes, or we caught him smoking some weed, or we caught him with a beer, or we you know, we caught him making out with his girlfriend or whatever, whatever it would be right to go down the wrong path. But most parents are not going to assume the wrong path is taking them down to heinous murder for no reason other than they just wanted to murder somebody. The ABC news put it pretty succinctly saying that friends of the teenagers were shocked that the boys who came from middle-class families and participated in activities like school musicals and the boy scouts would conspire to commit such brutality. The community, they not only blamed the the boys, but some people in the community were blaming the parents of these kids as well, saying that the parents must have ignored the signs that they enabled them. Yeah. And labeling the boys as evil monsters, psychopaths who deserved the death penalty. Many people also believe that there were varying levels of culpability among the pack of five. After all, according to what the boys were saying, only two of them actually participated in the physical attacks on our two victims. Savoy wasn't even at the Tro Road house at all. Thankfully, none of them were granted bail. They were going to sit in jail and wait for their trial. They would have to stay there until their trial date. While all of this was going on, our survivor, sixth grader Jamie Cates, attended her mother's funeral in a wheelchair. She was able to return to school the week of October 27th. She and her father issued a statement that thanked all of the first responders, doctors, law enforcement and community members. So what's the story about the, the high school yearbook? This is an interesting one. And this is not something that we would have in a lot of our cases, given the age of the perpetrators. But right now we have these five young men as disgusting as they are. They're sitting in a jail cell waiting for their trials. And we have the state that's going to be busy preparing indictments and working to build their case against these individuals. In the meantime, the 2009-2010 school year is drawing to a close, and the yearbook is going to be released. And this takes place in March of 2010. The high school yearbook contained pictures of all of its students, as one would expect, but in this case, it includes even the ones in jail for the Cates murder. Remember, two of these guys 
were still in high school at the time of these crimes. In fact, they were picked up at school when the police wanted to question these guys. Right. So David Cates, he's the father of our young surviving victim. He's the husband of our other victim. He sent a letter to the school administrators requesting an apology for the inclusion of photos of Quinn Glover and William Marks in that year's yearbook. His letter read, I can't understand why you made such a disrespectful decision. Jamie is going to the school in two very short years. How can she have respect towards the administration when you were so disrespectful toward her mother's memory? Jamie and our families will survive this slap in the face, but I think the bigger picture is the message you sent to students. By condoning the immortalization of these soulless young men that consciously, with intent, invaded our home and took my beautiful wife from Jamie and me. Chances are that this is was the last thing on the administrator's mind. They probably, you see what I'm saying? Like maybe one of these kids played on a soccer team earlier in their career, high school career, and they won a state championship and their picture is somewhere up in the hallway. Administrator might not, that might not pop into their head that they need to go take that down. Just like the administrators are not in charge of every decision that the yearbook is making. There normally is a class for that or um, after school group for that so it wouldn't be the first thing on their mind now mind you again the person uh, who whatever teacher is in charge of putting together this the yearbook probably should have popped that into their brain right i mean the the school administration is in control of of whatever class is in charge of the the yearbook what's crazy is that this is this is a conscious decision it's not as though the yearbook was sent in for printing in september And when the murders happened in October, no one thought to take out the pictures of the two boys. Rather, the school consulted with the Marks and Glover parents who said they wanted to leave the pictures of their sons in the yearbook. So the school decided to go along with that. Mm. I, I get what you're saying. If somebody plays on the soccer team and you got 16 other kids on the team and coaches and what have you, you it's very difficult to go back and retake that picture. It's pretty easy to leave leave the little yeah, square picture yeah. out of the actual yearbook. And I think to, to take it a step further that David Cates is, is very right. His daughter, who was attacked by these guys, mm-hmm. she is going to be attending that school in two very short years. And it just seems like, as he said, I think it's a slap in the face. Uh, and I think that it's, I think it's disrespectful. It's, well, it's definitely disrespectful for the fact that they actually talked to the parents. And then they, like you said, they actually had to make a decision. It I, was on their minds. Yeah. I thought it was just something that they might've just overlooked. And then it's like, Oh, come on, give them a break. They got so many things to deal with to run a school that they might overlooked it. But the fact that they, actually made a decision and talked to the parents at some point you just tell the parent like look well, i know why you want to leave the, the the kid in the book but we're going to take him out out of respect for the surviving uh, family members and for the victim well and here's here's the issue that 
that I have with it. I'm 100% on David Cates' side on this. And, and I, I think it, I find it actually appalling. And, and the reason why is it would have taken no more effort to reach out to David Cates. You realize that this was a decision you were going to be making and that it would have, it would, it carries some weight. This is an important mm-hmm. decision that you're making. You understood so much that you reached out to the parents of the students, reach out to the member of your community and say, we've reached out to the parents. They would like to keep the pictures in the yearbook, at least get his opinion. They mm-hmm. didn't do that. Right. And, and here's the thing. Here's the issue. It's innocent until proven guilty. These two have not gone to trial yet. They've not been actually convicted or sentenced for these crimes. So I get that. Maybe the idea is leave them in there because they're innocent. The problem with that is we have a situation where we have confessions of these individuals and these confessions check out. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not like their confessions and the, the police got some teenagers to admit to do something that they didn't do. These confessions track. Yeah, so as an administrator, you, you go, i got to call the parents, ring, ring, ring. Parents, hello? Um, well, we have confirmed that your kid's a piece of shit, and we're taking them out of the yearbook. Yeah. I mean, all kinds of things. You, you can have excuses why if you want to defend yourself to the parents and say, look, they didn't finish school, so we're not including them. Uh, if they are found innocent and they attend next year, we'll put their picture back in. The other thing you can do is, I personally, I wouldn't have even, even consulted with the um, with the Glover or Mark's parents in this situation. Now, we have the trials that we need to get to. And this will be five criminal cases that were scheduled to go before a special grand jury, which would possibly hand down murder indictments, possibly hand down additional charges. This was apparently enough to scare some of these idiots straight because what we have here now is that three of the five defendants, this would be Glover, Marks, and Savoy, they all agreed to testify against the other two, Spader and Gribble. Of course, they want to avoid murder charges, so they're willing to cooperate. Spader and Gribble were both indicted on murder charges, and under New Hampshire law faced mandatory sentences of life in prison without parole if found guilty of first-degree murder. They were not eligible for the death penalty. Under New Hampshire law, capital murder, for which the death penalty is an option, was defined at the time as only six types of murder. One, killing an, an on-duty law enforcement officer or judge a murder for hire, murder committed in connection with the kidnapping, murder committed during rape, murder committed during certain drug offenses, and murder committed by a convict already serving a life sentence without parole. In the Granite State's 380-year history, New Hampshire has executed only 24 people and none since the year 1939. Before the trials in August of 2010, one of the scheduled witnesses died. This was Jamie Hollins. He was the buddy who was with Kyle Fenton when Spader and Gribble showed up and bragged to them about what they had done. Right. Hollins 
himself was no angel. He had a record for burglary of an ice cream shop. Must have been some good ice cream. And at the time of his death, was facing another burglary charge. His mother told WMUR Boston that, quote, her son was tormented by what he knew about the Kate's murder. She said he could not sleep after being told about the attacks and being shown the weapons. He was stressed and afraid to testify. His mom found him dead in his room one morning in August. He... This is her quote to WMUR. She said, quote, He went to bed perfectly fine, and when I woke up in the morning, I found him dead. I didn't know what to do. His lips were purple, fingernails, everything. She continued, Just the other night, he was so stressed out, sitting in his room, rocking himself back and forth because he's so stressed. He didn't know what to do. She said her son was on sleeping pills and antidepressants, but... Seemed okay that night when he went to bed. It's unclear whether this was a suicide, accidental overdose or what, but Hollins was, he passed on and was not available to testify against Spader or Gribble. It makes me wonder what Spader and Gribble might have done that we are not aware of. Because like I said, you know, boys will sit around and go, oh, let's go prank these people or let's go do this or that. It seemed like there's a very steep escalation. And I'd probably argue that maybe it wasn't so steep. That maybe there there are other actions and other heinous things that these individuals did that we're just not well aware of. And when you have a, a friend of these guys, I don't think it's just as simple as well, I now know that they're capable of murder, so maybe they'll come after me one day or maybe get somebody else to come after me. I think there would have to be more actions that we're just not aware of that that these friends would know about. And to top that off, you might have a situation here where somebody is already struggling with some other things, some other issues. Maybe they're a bit unstable themselves. And then you you add to that the fear of one testifying against these people, but also is there some guilt that this individual was, was harboring that, that they felt guilty for who knows? I mean, maybe this person said to themselves when they were being told what, what these two monsters had done, that they weren't going to turn them in or they weren't going to do anything about it. Right. You know, so it could be, a whole whole bunch of stuff and and regardless it's just these events these horrible things that people for whatever reason do to one another and then they put so little thought into it that there are real victims this isn't just something this isn't grand theft auto that you play on your playstation 4 mm-hmm. these are real people these are real consequences you've not only killed this woman and really almost destroyed the life of this, this child. But then her, every one of her family is a victim. And then the perpetrators, everyone in their families are victims as well. And it's, it's just amazing that the, that there's so little thought put into any of these actions by some of these people. Now, Steven Spader, his trial would start in 2010. He pled not guilty 
Needless to say, the state came out swinging, causing some jury members to shed tears with uh, prosecutory statements like, quote, Kim and Jamie's screams did not stop him. Their cries, their begging, their pleas did not stop him because he was so merciless and he and Gribble were focused on what they intended to do and planned on doing all along. And the simple way to put that is to break in and kill whoever was inside for fun, for kicks, ultimately for a few pieces of jewelry. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. 
That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. A big cheers to everybody, a big cheers to you, Colonel, and a special cheers to anybody that is still homeschooling their children. That would be a very tough task, so this drink is for you. And cheers to, well, don't have a drink, but cheers to those who are still dealing with their parents homeschooling them. That can't be easy either. Yeah, so. I drink for <laughs> Pour my, a little out for everyone. My dad doesn't know math. We're all into this, all in this together. So, the Spader trial is the key one here, Captain. Because remember, he is the guy that you want to sink. He's not only one of the most evil of the five, but he's also the guy that didn't really admit to anything. We got everybody else singing like a bunch of birds, saying this is what happened. But Spader, last time he spoke to investigators, he says. Yeah, I was with Gribble when he was out there uh, pawning some jewelry. Uh, I wasn't there that night. I didn't kill anybody, and I don't know who did. Yeah, I I told you how big of a douchebag this guy is. Um, At his trial, at some point it was his birthday, and he asked his lawyer, do you think the jury will sing happy birthday to me? And he, like, laughing all smug. Mm -hmm. And... What I can say nice about his lawyer is that he definitively said no. Like, that's the dumbest question you ask, you idiot. 
Well, speaking of Spader's attorney, the attorney mounted a defense which included testimony from a forensic scientist that stated that no DNA or fingerprint evidence belonging to Stephen Spader connected him to the scene of the crime. Of course, an awful lot of circumstantial evidence did connect Spader to the crime, such as his sweatshirt with his name on it found in the trash bag containing stolen items from the Kate's home. And the defense attorneys also warned the jury that Spader's co-conspirators or people that had already confessed to some of these crimes, they were going to testify against him. But keep in mind, jury, that Marks, Savoy, and Glover, who will testify against my client, all received deals from the state lessening their sentences. Now, what do we know about Stephen Spader? People who knew him said that in years past, he was a good kid, a nice guy. But then in the summer before his sophomore year, Spader seemed to change. He stopped paying attention to his schoolwork, started wearing all black and painting his fingernails black. He drew a swastika on his head and declared that he was a member of the Crips. I do I not mind. I don't think that's their symbol. I do not mind the children or the peeps wearing the black. I do not you know, dye the hair black, paint the fingernails. Doesn't bother me where I get a little concerned. And, I, and I'm saying that sarcastically, please hear the sarcasm in my voice is the swastika on someone's head and then claiming to be a member of a criminal enterprise, such as the Crips. Now see, I don't mind it so much. At least they're branding themselves so you can see their dumbass coming at some point. And it seems to be linked to a possible bad breakup. He began cutting himself and he was to be on medication for bipolar disorder, but he would often stop taking this medication. And he was also running away from his parents' home. He had anger management issues and his anger would increase if he was off of his meds or taking recreational drugs. Now, I don't know if his adopted parents knew this or not. I think there was speculation that he did have some trauma in his um, younger years before they actually adopted him. Yeah, and it is a, a bit of a question mark if they knew this in advance or mm-hmm. not. Uh, by the time of the murder, this once good kid uh, was now a high school dropout who still lived with his parents. Well, do you, do you know anything about when he was real little? Yes. And I was going to get into okay. that. Um, and they were forcing him to seek counseling and they did tell him he needed to get his GED, which he, he did. And he was taking classes at a community college. This all at the time of the actual murder. Mm-hmm. Now, according to the Boston Herald, friends told the paper that they believe Spader was a candidate for suicide, not for homicide. His mood and behavior grew darker as he matured, they said. Spader was in and out of treatment programs. He shaved his head, abused marijuana and speed, and cut and burned his own skin. Yeah, well, there was actually a call from his therapist to his parents stating that he made several threats against them, you know, saying that he wanted to kill his parents. And the parents were like, is this something we should be worried about? Because I would be as a parent. Mm Mm-hmm. My kid's saying he wants to kill me, and they're saying, no, no, it's actually more of a coping mechanism, and 
and he probably actually just wants to hurt himself. Right. And you want to say to the therapist, well, you were wrong about that one because if this would, if they would have been free any longer, I, I would actually think that Spader would have went after somebody else. Either so, on his own or with the help of these guys. That's right. I think that's for certain. Yeah. Now, his grandmother, Mary Ann Spader, said of Spader's parents that they did everything for this boy. They gave him everything. They were devoted to this kid. His parents, she says, were the nicest people. I don't know how something like this could happen. Now, Spader's adoptive parents, who adopted him at just five days old, had forced him to go to a treatment program when they observed a dramatic change in his behavior. This was when he was 16 years old. This live-in retreat was just months before the murder. The It was an expensive program that they took on themselves in hope of turning their son around. At the trial, prosecutors called a lot of witnesses to establish that Spader was, in fact, a psychopath and that he planned to murder someone long in advance. They presented evidence that in the months leading up to the attack, Spader hung out often with Gribble, Marx, Glover, and Savoy. During this time, he talked about breaking into people's homes and killing them. <sighs> he also talked about eating people and roasting their bodies, putting heads on stakes, putting bodies in a wood chipper, creating displays out of the bodies for the media to later find, torturing creating chloroform to knock out victims mm. so they could be killed in silence. He spent time trying to make chloroform at his home and he had purchased a knife just days before the crime. And Spader formed a group of losers called the Disciples of Destruction, DOD for short. Wow, what a cool name. Yeah. He mm -hmm. was the self-appointed president of his little club he actually drafted a mission statement that called for bloodshed and he and Marx cased out the Tro road home, as we've already talked about and selected that house to hit. They then told Gribble that the crime was to be Gribble's initiation into the DOD. Spader told Savoy to provide them with an alibi. It's not clear why Savoy was not included in the, the actual committing of the crime. Right. So we have all these guys saying that, look, Spader, he's the evil one or the most evil one. Mm. He is the leader. And we've all confessed not only to what Spader did, but what we have done and Spader's still not confessing. So now they're going to testify against him. And during the testimony, this is going to offer some more details about that actual night and things leading up to the crime and even after saying that, you know, Spader attended a high school football game on that Saturday there at the high school football game. He tells Glover to be ready that night because he was going to call him so that they could go break into a house. He also gave Glover a list of ingredients to purchase and instructions to make chloroform. Glover was to bring gloves with him and a knife. The group texted about their plans throughout the day. About 10 p.m., Gribble texted Spader, cool, ought to be a good party, to which Spader responded, we'll have fun. Around 1.30 a.m., 
Spader texted Glover, you've got to get out soon because we're ready. We need completion of the DOD to go on. Glover waffled about going and Spader ordered him to join them. Eventually, Glover snuck out of his house and got into Gripple's car with the rest of the DOD. And on the way to Tro Road, Spader declared that the purpose of the night was to get Chris into killing. So again, we keep pointing out that this could, on the surface, to some, seem like, oh, it's just teenagers talking. This is a lot of talking. Yeah, This is a lot of preparation for things that seem to be about what they're all talking about. And that's why I'm saying I guarantee you there's there's other stuff, whether it's cruelty to animals, whether it's bullying, whether it's other break-ins, other little crimes. That was all, I guarantee you, happening before this murder. And I'm going to try to go through this without getting too much more into the details of the actual attack itself. One, it's hard to get through. And two, we've discussed it pretty well so far, unfortunately. Now, Quinn Glover did testify that he saw Spader physically kill Kimberly. Billy Marks testified that in the light of the full moon that night, he could see Spader chopping at the people in the bed with the machete. After they turned the light back on, he saw Steven Spader kick Jamie in the chest and hit her in the head with the machete. After Gribble stabbed Jamie and threw her, Spader made him come over and stab Kimberly a few more times. Then he went over to Jamie and kicked her and struck her with the machete and said something. This is beyond bizarre. He stated, I'm bored. Despite this seemingly lackadaisical attitude toward the murders, Spader later told his buddies that the whole thing was a rush. He was euphoric and felt like he had just gotten off of a roller coaster. He joked about how Kimberly woke up to being hacked with a machete. When he found out that Jamie had survived, Spader turned to Gribble and said, you're an idiot. You can't even kill a fifth grader. Spader's friend Kyle Fenton testified that that Spader bragged about the killings afterwards as well. Now, the defense did their best to raise questions about who actually did the killing and tried to undermine the testimony of the three witnesses, Glover, Savoy, and Marks. They pressed Marks about boasts he had made about stabbing somebody with a knife. Defense attorneys presented evidence that Glover's weapon of choice was an axe, saying that he posted a photo of himself with one on his MySpace page. So they're really just trying to present the idea that these other three could have done the murder without Spader. But the defense called no witnesses whatsoever in the course of the trial, and Spader did not testify in his own defense. And Spader's behavior prior to and at the trial did not do him any favors. He threatened three of the witnesses testifying against him while they were on the stand. This is right in front of the jury testimony from Spader's jailmate, a what gang a member idiot. named Chad Landry was probably the most damaging Landry told jurors he and Spader would pass notes or, or kites back and forth inside books that they slid down the corridor between their cells. Landry was no dummy and he saw an opportunity. He pretended to flush the notes down the toilet 
knowing Spader could hear it, but he actually kept these notes and contacted authorities to use the letters as leverage to get himself a reduced sentence. These letters were gold for the prosecutors since Spader had not confessed to the crimes. Landry read some of these notes on the stand. Spader wrote to Landry that he whacked the mother 36 times and that he could see brains and lots of blood and that her eyeball was hanging out of its socket. It was such an adrenaline rush, he wrote. I almost hit Gribble with the machete. In one of the letters, Spader called himself the most sick and twisted person you will ever meet. He said that he found torture highly enjoyable. Death doesn't frighten me. Blood excites me. He wrote, I've got more shit wrong in my brain than you can think of. But such is life. Another letter explained how he wanted to start a crew or brotherhood, and he set up the home invasion as a test to see if his friends had the guts to do it. I mean, what a piece of work. Well, this testimony right here is really the slam dunk for the prosecution because we have all these other people who are saying, yes, this is the things that Spader was saying before in the actions he was doing before the murders. This is what he did at the crime scene when he killed Kimberly. And these are the things that he was saying afterwards. This guy's testimony is different in the sense that they are presenting notes in Spader's own handwriting, confirming all of the things that these people are saying. Right. So now not only are his friends turning against him and confessing, now we have basically a written confession confirming those confessions. So the jurors only deliberated for 90 minutes. And well, that's because they also went out to lunch be, uh, before they decided. Spader was convicted on all counts on his 19th birthday. Remember, this is where he made the joke about the jury singing him happy birthday. The state's sentencing memo says his attack was calculated, vicious, and unprovoked. Spader was determined to find a house, render the occupants unconscious, get bank numbers, large sums of money, torture the residents in the house, and eventually kill every member of the family. As described in the sentencing memo, under New Hampshire law, he was sentenced to mandatory life without parole on the first-degree murder charge, and the court imposed a consecutive maximum sentencing on the remaining charges, which was 76 years. But that description of his sentence does not convey the fury with which the judge sentenced Spader. Hillsborough County Superior Court Judge Jillian Abramson said, I could go on for days and days and days about the depth of your depravity, but it is sufficient to say that you belong in a cage and I will sentence you to the maximum and you will stay in that cage for the rest of your pointless life. And I, I wish in a fair world, what they would say is, look, we're going to put you in this cell for the rest of your life, but we're also going to give Jamie the victim that survived. We're going to give her a machete and we're going to give her keys. And whenever she wants to, she could go in there and attack you. So have fun sleeping. That sounds fair to me, but more than likely, she's not the animal that this guy is, you know, and wouldn't 
want to cause that level of harm or hurt to to anyone. Now, Chris Gribble, we still got to deal with this guy. He he didn't get a traditional trial, and that is because he pled not guilty by reason of insanity to all of the charges against him. Under New Hampshire law, this means he forfeited his criminal trial. Instead, his lawyers had to prove to the jury that his actions were the result of a mental disease or defect. The question was not whether he participated. He already confessed. But whether he did so in his own right mind. The judge was the same one as in the Spader case. The way this worked is a little complicated, but basically if the jury found unanimously that Gribble's actions were the result of mental disease or defect, he would be committed to a psychiatric unit in the state prison rather than just go to regular prison. And he would be entitled to another hearing every five years to determine whether he still presented a danger to society. If Gribble's attorneys failed to show that his actions were the result of mental disease or defect, he would be found guilty of murder. If this was a unanimous verdict, he would be sentenced to life in prison without parole. If neither decision was unanimous, it would be a hung jury and Gribble would be retried at a later date. Gribble's attorneys argued that he suffered from antisocial personality disorder and all sorts of witnesses testified either for this point or against it. It is interesting to see the picture painted of this guy by people who knew him. He was described as a dork, awkward, someone who would ramble on about uninteresting topics. He was always misreading social cues, and the girls called him Creepy Chris. Some testified that he was very smart and nice, although he didn't really seem to understand others. One mom recalled how he said he loved her cookies and seemed devoted to his Mormon faith. But he also dressed in camo gear all of the time. This might seem weird, I guess, but he was a U.S. Army Cadet Corps group. He was in that group. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not that weird. Yeah, but sometimes you know, with the ROTC guys, people would pick on them because they had to wear uniforms to school. Right, but I think what they're pointing out here is that he wore the stuff all the time, and that, in fact, is weird. But I'm pointing out he did have a reason or a purpose for wearing it at least some of the time. He played Dungeons & Dragons. Again, that's just a hobby. That's weird. Yeah, some people people say that's weird. That's Mm. about as weird as Grand Theft Auto to me, and a Mm. lot of people play that, and I think Grand Theft Auto is probably even more violent. He got good grades but started to change around 2008. Autumn Savoy... You know, no saint himself testified that Gribble was Robin to Stephen Spader's Batman. Mm. Gribble's father, Richard, testified that his son was intelligent, well-spoken, but that he was socially awkward and also had a warped world view in which he was always in the right. A friend of Gribble's told the Boston Herald that he himself, that he saw himself as a destroying angel. And he said he hated his father. Apparently part of his insanity defense relied on Gribble testifying that he was abused by his mother. Gribble took the stand and admitted that he had fantasized about torturing and killing her from the age 14 on because she was abusive. Now, was it was it Gribble that also said that he was 
possibly sexually abused when he was younger? Uh, I didn't get into that. I, I didn't come I, I across thought, that. I thought I saw something about that. But he said, this is per an Associated Press article, he said, quote, he fantasized about taking his mother into the woods and cutting off little pieces of her bit by bit listening to her scream. He also said he thought about pouring boiling water over her sensitive parts and bending her limbs out of joint and sprinkling her with sugar so the crows would come and pluck at her, saying, hey, if I'm going to kill her, why not make her pay? But his father testified that his parents were loving, not abusive, and in fact, his son gave him a black eye in the course of an altercation. His mother said all she had done was once when he was five, whack him on the back with a wooden spoon. There was no abuse. Other witnesses testified that Gribble's parents were very patient with him, very involved, homeschooling him and supporting him by participating in the Boy Scouts and participating in Dungeons and Dragons with him. Richard was an EMT, his father, and Cub Scout and later troop leader, volunteering so his son could obtain Eagle Scout rank. As described in an article in the Nashua Telegraph, Richard Gribble said he and his wife tried to teach their son right from wrong and to instill a set of values in him. Assistant Attorney General Peter Hinckley asked him if he thought they had succeeded And he said, given the fact that he's admitted to committing two very heinous crimes, I'd say no. His father testified that the machete and the knife used on Kimberly and Jamie were taken from his home before the attack, and he did not know this until after his son was arrested. Gribble's Facebook page was found to reflect that he considered himself a devout Mormon who loved God and a gun and knife enthusiast. He wrote on his page, although everyone has a light and dark side, mine are very extreme. If I like you, or at least don't dislike you, I'm the sweetest, nicest person ever. But heaven help me if I truly lose it. It's not pretty. In a different post, he referenced a hit list that contained seven people whom he said he hated. The most chilling part on his Facebook page at 11 a.m. on Sunday, October 4th, just hours After the attack on Jamie and Kimberly Cates, he wrote, I had an awesome time with Steve and Autumn. Dexter is such a funny show. Well, I think their downfall is they're trying to claim that he's insane, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not just insane at the time of the murder. It's just insane in general. But they put him on the stand. And I think this is actually a problem for them because he, he is very well-spoken. Yeah, he took the stand at trial and testified about the attacks. He admitted that he and Spader intended to kill anyone they found in the home that they chose to burglarize. He even demonstrated how he had held the knife as he used it on the victims. And he testified that he wanted to shoot people, and he was not certain that he would not kill again if he was given the opportunity and described himself as dangerous on the stand. I think the thing here is from a defense side, or at least from this guy's, you know, this Gribbles, what what he's hoping for, he doesn't really have a whole lot to lose, right? 
worst case scenario, he ends up getting life in prison without the possibility of parole, which is what he's going to get if he's found guilty regardless. So why not try to, you know, poop your pants and rub it all over your face in front of the jury? Maybe he, maybe he could have put it on a little bit better, I think is what you're pointing out here. Now the prosecution had experts, including a psychiatrist who interviewed Gribble for several hours. And these experts testified that Gribble was in fact sane. He knew the difference between right and wrong. And prosecutors pointed out that Gribble had been sane enough to plot the crime, try to cover it up, and try to hide evidence and lie about his involvement. The jury rejected Chris Gribble's insanity claim and declared him guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, attempted murder, conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to commit burglary, and witness tampering. They deliberated for only two hours. It seems like their lunch was a little bit longer than the previous juries. (laughs) Our brave, resilient survivor, Jamie, by this time is still just 12 years old. She was, in fact, in the courtroom for this trial. She was not asked to testify. Her father, David, gave a victim impact statement as he had done in Spader's trial as well and thanked the judge for being impartial throughout the trial. The judge thanked Jamie for her presence in the courtroom, saying it was nice to finally get the chance to meet her. The judge assured her that the men involved in this horrible crime could never hurt her again. Then she almost happily imposed the mandatory sentence of life without parole, telling Gribble, infinity is not enough jail time for you. She added a sentence of 50 years to life plus a maximum of an additional 52 years on other charges. But how impressive is that, that she was able to, one, she lives through the attack, she recovers, but to have the strength to show up and face the attackers in court at mm-hmm. 12 years old, mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty baller. Billy Marks agreed to plead guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and burglary and to being an accomplice to first-degree assault in exchange for a reduced sentence. Marks was sentenced to 30 to 60 years. His sentence was, in fact, a stiff one because he admitted to helping plan the crime. There are some interesting things within this portion of the story, though, Captain, because remember... Spader's defense lawyers, they actually tried to pin the crime, the murder, on Marx. Mm-hmm. They emphasized that Marx had been alone in the house with the victims for some time on that night. This was when he climbed into the basement before the others got into the house. They implied that he had perhaps done the killing on his own before the rest of them got into the house. The other interesting thing about Marx, too, is this is the only bit where I could find that any of the five at one point said, ho, 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 wait a second, maybe this is not such a good idea. You know, everybody else seemed to be going along with this all the way. So what we found here was text messages. Mark actually texted Spader that they should wait to rob a house until the family that occupied the home was not at home that I guess he's trying to deter them from attacking and killing everyone in the house. Like Spader said that they wanted 
to do. Now, unfortunately, and to discredit Marx, that's not what happened. And he went along with this whole nightmare of a plan. Quinn Glover was charged with only robbery, burglary, and conspiracy to commit burglary on condition that he would plead guilty to all of those charges and testify against all of the others. He was sentenced to 20 to 40 years. His shorter sentence was due to prosecutors' recognition of the fact that he was the first one in the group to cooperate with police and start telling them what actually happened and who did what. Now, what happened to Autumn, the one that wasn't there? Autumn Savoy pled guilty only to charges of hindering apprehension and conspiracy. In exchange, he got a sentence of 5 to 12 years in prison. He was, in fact, paroled in 2015. That brings us, Captain, to the sentencing review. This took place in June of 2012, and this was a U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, handed down with a ruling in the Miller v. Alabama case, which required the sentence given to Stephen Spader to be reviewed. This is because he's a minor and he received a sentence of life without parole. We're not going to get too much into the minutia of the legality of all this bit. What does happen is he, by his own rights, gets this review. He decides that he does not want to be reviewed. He does not want his sentence reduced or changed in any manner. He refused to cooperate. He would not allow himself to be transported to court for any of the hearings. Regardless if he wants to participate in this review or not, it's going to have to happen per the law. So he's not there to argue his side. However, someone will argue his side for him. Basically, the prosecution is going to make all of the arguments that they made previously. This guy's a psychopath. He's admitted to killing people. He's a violent offender. He deserves the sentence that he got. We should not change anything. But what is interesting in this whole bit of legal proceedings is that this is when it came out about the evaluations of Spader in regards to his having been adopted. Spader was adopted at only five days old from a mother who had substance abuse problems. Baby Steven tested positive for marijuana and cocaine when he was born. And then in 2008, he starts having all of these problems that we talked about leading up to the murder. Right. It's worth asking the question, was Spader predetermined to be a violent offender or violent killer because of his exposure to drugs in utero? The court during these proceedings did not seem to consider this to be a factor in their sentencing process. The court also took into consideration Spader's statement of regret delivered by his attorneys in court. This is basically his statement of refusing to go along with this procedure but also stating that he was in fact sorry for the crimes that he committed and the harm that he had done. The sentencing judge was not swayed. The court says that they find these sentiments self-serving, disingenuous, and inconsistent with the defendant's true regret. 
The judge ruled that Spader will forever be a danger to society. The court exercises its right of discretion toward sentencing the defendant to life without parole. They upheld the sentence that was originally handed down for this guy. There was also a nasty poem that was presented at his trial, his original trial that he wrote. Mm -hmm. And it shows very, it shows no talent at all as far as being a writer, but it really just goes along with him proclaiming to his, his jailmate that he's this horrible, despicable monster who enjoyed killing someone and would kill again. In June of 2011, the New Hampshire governor signed a bill expanding the state's death penalty to cover murders committed during burglaries and home invasions. This law was passed as a direct result of the Cates murder. The bill was named after Kimberly Cates. House Speaker William O'Brien said our homes are our sanctuary, and this was a necessary enhancement of protection for those in their homes who have the right to be safe and secure. Jamie is now in college. Her dad has been her supporter every step of the way, and the two remain very close. They still live in the house on Tro Road. Each year on the anniversary of the attack, David Cates hosts a golf tournament to raise money for a scholarship in his wife's name. Many of the police officers and prosecutors who worked on the case participate. The four young men who invaded the Cates' home and carried out their despicable thrill kill will spend a significant part, if not all, of their lives in prison. The town of Mount Vernon, New Hampshire, is forever changed by their actions. It's a small comfort that these young men are put away, but it's deeply disturbing that these promising young people who were given every privilege in life and were members of mainstream communities found each other, fed on each other, and together carried out their darkest urges. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to True Crime Garage and spending your time with us. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading this week? Yes, we do, Captain. This week, we are very happy to be recommending The Cases That Haunt Us by John Douglas and Mark Allshaker. America's foremost expert on criminal profiling provides his uniquely gripping analysis of seven of the most notorious murder cases in the history of of crime. Check out The Cases That Haunt Us by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. You can find that great title as well as many others on our website, truecrimegarage.com. Absolutely one of my favorite true crime books. I have listened to it twice on Audible. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.